0: Well, please turn with me in your copy of your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Well, this morning we are going to look at a section in Colossians which is often considered as a familiar approach of Paul in all his letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Except for two letters, you will observe in all the other letters of Paul that he opens up the letter with a greeting and then immediately he launches into prayer with thanksgiving to God for the churches. Now, observing... This someone could easily be led into thinking that it is Paul's usual greetings and prayer and therefore we do not have to spend much time on it. And move on to the more useful instruction that I found in his letters. No one could possibly say, well Paul Paul almost uses the same words, same expressions, obviously with some changes here and there in all the greetings and prayers, and what is there to learn from it? And it's just a customary thing that he often does. Now, But saying that would be a mistake. It is the Holy Spirit of God who is the real author who penned this letter, and therefore he did not waste words and expressions without purpose. We are reminded by Paul himself in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped with every good work. So what we have here is the writings of the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit. And he used the Apostle Paul to pen these words. The words, all scripture that is found in 2 Timothy. That passage is a reference to every single verse and line in the word of God. Therefore, Paul's prayers, which we will consider this morning, are inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and for instruction at all times. Now there is another possible mistake we could make by thinking that Paul gives these prayers almost in every letter and therefore there cannot be anything specifically relevant to the Colossians (laughs) in this prayer. Now if we do that, they would be wrong again. Because the prayer of Paul here in this section, in the first chapter, is particularly relevant to the situation of the church in Colossae. And Paul's prayer helps us to understand something of the faith of the Colossian church and the nature of their ministry and the difficulties that they encountered. Now, therefore, with God's help, Let us consider these verses before us this morning. One to wait. Now I want to open up this passage under three headings. First of all, the nature of Paul's prayer. The nature of Paul's prayer. When you read this chapter, you will notice immediately that the prayer of Paul begins in verse 3 and finishes in verse 14. The long prayer. There are two parts in this prayer. In that verses 3 to 8 is one section and 9 to 14 is another section. Verses 3 to 8 is what we call a thanksgiving to God in prayer. Verses 9 to 14 is the supplication (coughs) or prayer requests of the Apostle Paul. So this morning we will only focus on the thanksgiving part of Paul's prayer. In the Greek language, verses 3 to 8 is one long, complex sentence. I'm sure you are aware that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is one long sentence. In the Greek language it is possible to make complex thoughts into one long sentence. In English language, one will have to break them into several sentences without losing the quality and the effect of the thoughts of the author. Now, if you read these verses slowly, you may think that Paul, the apostle, is repeating himself unnecessarily in certain places. But that is not the case. You will have to remember that what Paul wrote in Greek is given to us in English here. Paul is a logical thinker. He's a logical writer. You will observe that in all his writings. Now, Paul's thanksgiving is spontaneous. So, spontaneously, he prays the logical presenter of the truth. He bursts out with thanksgiving from the depth of his heart without worrying too much about words and phrases. That does not mean he is careless with words that he used in his prayer. It is the spontaneity, the love that he has for God and the intimate relationship he enjoys with him that comes out openly in his prayer. Now this thanksgiving is a pouring out of what is in Paul's heart to God. This is not a cold, artificial, intellectual, lifeless expressions voiced out in language to God, but a warm thankfulness to God coming out of a heart that knows it is to love God and to serve God. Now I want to make several observations about this prayer of Paul because we are considering the nature of his prayer. First of all, it is a prayer of thanksgiving to God. He says in verse 3, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Almost in all his prayers, Paul thanks God as he begins his prayer. We should read verse 3 this way. While praying for you, We are always thanking God or we always thank God when we pray for you. Though Paul prays always as a practice, that is not the point that he is making in this verse. The Greek helps us to understand Paul's emphasis in the verse which is not on the regulatory of prayer, rather on giving thanks to God always in prayer. The word always should go with the phrase thank God rather than with prayer in the text. When Paul and the brethren prayed, always they gave thanks to God. He says that in other letters as well. Look for example in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. In First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. Now the shorter Catechism, question number 106, it asks this question, What is prayer which is acceptable to God? Now the answer is this, acceptable prayer, which is an offering up of the desires of the righteous unto God for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, by the help of His Spirit, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Now for the last part of that answer in the Catechism, it gives Philippians 4 and verse 6 as the proof text. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now it is the same word used here in Colossians chapter verse 3. Thanksgiving must always be part of our prayers to God. So Paul begins nearly every one of his letters to the churches with an outpouring thanksgiving to God. Throughout his writings, he again and again insists on the necessity of giving thanks. Second Corinthians 4.15 For all things are for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. <laughs> Notice in Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, To which also you are called to one body. And be thankful. (laughs) Hendrickson. The commentator writes. I quote prayer without thanksgiving. Is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven. Can find no acceptance with God. In quote. Do you give thanks to God always? Do your prayers rise to heaven with thanksgiving always? Paul makes the point clearly in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 there is no need for worries and hair pulling turmoil in Christian's life if he turns his prayers toward heavenward with thanksgiving to God. Give thanks to God for all things. Now secondly notice to who. This prayer is directed. It is directed to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has a right to this name. God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a very special relationship that the Son of God enjoys with the Father in Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the third person, was not given that privilege, though he is God. And all their sense of Godhead is present, just as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus alone is the Son of God. And God is his father. Jesus addresses him as father. Jesus is God's son by nature. But when we call God our father, we are able to do that for the only reason we have been accepted and adopted to be the children of God, our father. God is not our father by our nature but he is to Jesus Christ. Now there's a very practical purpose in calling God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul points that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, mm-hmm. verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God. Of all comfort. It is only through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Flows to us from the Father. All our blessings are from God through his Son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that comes to us from God the Father is in Christ. And in Christ. Let us not forget that. Paul says in Ephesians, He, that is God, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What a great and grand reason for our thanksgiving to God, our Father. Now, well, having looked at the nature of Paul's prayer, now let us secondly consider the reasons for Paul's prayer. Notice that Paul's thanksgiving to God is for the Colossians. He is praying and giving thanks to God for the church that was in Colossae. Why did he give thanks to God for the church in Colossae? There are two reasons for that. The first reason for thanksgiving is this, that is found in verse 4. The news he heard about the Colossians brought to him much joy. Notice verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Paul was never involved indirectly with the planting of the church in Colossae. It was done by this man whose name is found here, Epaphras. He did the work. But that did not stop the apostle Paul taking keen interest in the work. Though he was in prison. He didn't do that because he was an apostle who had great authority over the churches. But he showed interest in the work because he cared for the gospel work and the progress of it. In every place. <clears throat> he was an apostle called to be. An evangelist. Evangelizing the Gentiles. Epaphras. The one who was instrumental. In planting this church in Colossae. Epaphras. Was a friend. Of the apostle Paul. Many times he has visited Paul in prison. And obviously he worked with Paul and he received counsel from Paul. Often he will ask various questions to Paul in order to make use of his wisdom for the work of the gospel. So it didn't matter whether Paul planted the church in Colossae or not. But Paul was thrilled and was excited whenever he heard about the gospel work progressing everywhere, including in Colossae. Paul was over the moon when the news was brought to him about the Colossian church. The phrase, when we heard, appears twice in this passage. He heard and was familiar with the very recent heresy that the Colossians had to fend off. He knew that they had a battle at hand and he was praying for that there's Spiritual welfare. That they would grow. They would be firm in the things that they had believed. That they would fend off this heresy. Then the news came to Paul's ears that the Colossians were doing well in Christ. What was the nature of this news? There are three things about it. The three things are faith, love, and hope. Now, why would Paul speak about this? Because these are the essence of Christian faith. Faith, love, and hope. If you want to know whether you are a Christian or not, ask yourself whether these three are true of you. If you have these in Christ and if you are continuing in Christ, then you have reasons to rejoice and reasons to be thankful to God. Let's like look at the first one. The news was about their faith in Christ. The Colossians' faith in Christ. Paul says in verse 4. He didn't say their faith of Christ. But faith in Christ. Paul is not speaking about the Colossians' of ob- so their objective faith but the faith that was resting in Christ. The proposition N in Greek is not a genitive of possession, but the proposition of rest. In other words, the Colossians in time, having placed their initial faith in Christ as their Savior and Lord, now continuing to rest in him. Paul was speaking about the sphere in which Colossians' faith moves and lives. They were solidly grounded in Christ and they were continuing in Christ. Now this surely would have brought joy to Paul. Heresy, or no heresy. The Colossians are resting in Christ. Their faith, surely was tested by these heresies that they faced. But they were not sentimentalists who would easily give in to any substitute to Christ. They were not false professors or pragmatists. They were true believers holding on to the faith of Christ with a death grip. The wind was blowing hard, the water is rising high, and the ship is being tossed and turned around, but it is holding tight. The man on the boxing ring is beaten up, thrown around, and he hits the canvas more than once. But he's standing like a giant who refuses to bow down, and that's how the Colossians are holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ and resting in him the colossians may not be the heroes of faith like the one of whom we read in chapter 11 of the book of hebrews but they were not an, they were not an accelerating church like the ephesians but they were resolutely resting in christ and continuing in him And secondly, the news was about their love for the saints. Their love for the saints. The Colossians loved the saints. Verse 4 tells us that. Reading literally, it should be your love into all the saints. The meaning is that the Colossians' love reached into the very hearts of the other believers. It is a love that is willing to sacrifice oneself for the person who is loved. It was not a superficial love in word only. It was the agape love that produced in the hearts of Christians by the Holy Spirit. We do not know in what way the Colossians expressed this love. But we do take the words of the Apostle. The Colossians demonstrated their love for the believers in practical terms. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, we read this. A new commandment I give to you, said Jesus, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Philippians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, just as it is right for me to think. This of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you with all the affection of Christ. That's Paul's love for the church. Now you can go on, you can read in the scripture in so many ways that the Christians demonstrated their love for one another. And the Colossians loved the brothers. Love is practical. You must demonstrate that through deed of kindness and words between fellow believers. Where there is love, there will always be no nitpicking on each other's false gossips or backbiting. And the church? These are self-destructive, painful deeds of the flesh, which is no place where there is love. Where there is true love, there will be Joyful praise to God and service to God. Where there is true love, there will be the effort to build up the saints and the holy faith. Now do we have that in our church? In our churches? Do we have it here? Do we love each other? Do we show that to strangers who come among us? Do we have the love that the Colossians had for one another and for the brethren? It is no wonder Paul writes in detail about it in his first letter to the Corinthians where there was no love lost between the members of the church. Now, faith and love go together. Faith is the foundation of love. These cannot be separated. Chrysostom, a church father calls faith and love, I quote, a wonderful pair of twins. The Lutheran commentator Lenski writes, I quote, they are mother, daughter, tree and fruit, branches and grapes, unquote. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. Faith and love. They go together. So having said this, there is a danger in laying too much stress on love. That is an almost dangerous error. That is, to neglect justification and faith and to glorify love and works in their place. that? Right? This error generally alters the essential matter of doctrine. A few years ago, I had to do some studies on pietism to develop study material for churches. It is pietism that produced rationalism in Germany. Pietism disregarded truth and saw its emphasis a danger to true love among the brethren. So we need to be careful. It should be a great warning to us today. Agape love is always a higher form of love Based on true intelligence and understanding of the truth of the Bible. And always coupled with corresponding purpose and action. Now thirdly, the news was about the hope that was theirs in heaven. Verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The Colossians, in addition to faith and love, also had hope. In the New Testament, the word hope is used to signify both the sentiment of hope and the thing that is hoped for. Here it is used to signify the thing hoped for. Listen to the writer who says, I caught the hope laid up in heaven, is not the deepest reason or motive for faith and love, but both are made more vivid when it is strong. It is not the light at which their lamps are lit, but it is the fragment oil which feeds their flame. Unquote. Now this hope of reward has been an incentive to the Colossians in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for the saints, encouraging both and causing both to make progress and grow more intense in Christ. This active hope working in the believers, energizing their faith and love to a greater intensity. So we are looking at the reasons for Paul's prayer. The second reason is this. The accelerating progress and the power of the gospel thrilled the heart of the apostle. Let me read to you from verse 5 in Colossians chapter 1. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Apophis, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, you heard the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. And it is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knows the grace of God in truth. So the Colossians heard the gospel and they believed in the gospel. The gospel is continuing to bear fruit among them. It is preached in all the world and it is bearing fruit everywhere. Epaphras is a witness to it and Paul has seen it. The gospel is preached in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and it is drawing men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is thrilled about it. Who will not be? He is excited about this. The Colossians have some men coming in with a new teaching and saying the gospel is powerless and it is not sufficient to save people in Christ. And they came with a new gospel, not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ or of Paul. The Christ they portrayed is a different Christ. Their gospel was not from the Bible. But Paul says you do not need another gospel. The gospel is sufficient to save people in Christ. The gospel, Paul says in Romans, is the power of God and the salvation of men. The gospel is the truth about God's way of salvation. We don't have to modify it. We don't have to alter it. We just preach it. It has the power through the Holy Spirit to save sinners. The Colossians needed this confirmation. So Paul affirms the power of the gospel in these verses. And his prayer. Why is there a need to preach the gospel? Or oh, another gospel? Why? They have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have to preach another gospel? What need is there to look for another substitute? That the Colossian heretics brought into the church. Now why will not this same gospel work in our day? If it has worked in those days among the Colossians and brought glory to God. During the first century. Yes the Colossian church was small. But the gospel was powerful. And the gospel saved them. It will save many even in our day. Paul was excited. By the work of the gospel. That is why we keep preaching. Not only in our church. And in the Sabbaths we take it to. Any place where God enables us to go to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ among all men, among all language groups and seeing people converted to Christ and glorifying Christ. Thirdly, it is the prayer of vindication to Epaphras' ministry. The same the nature of Paul's prayer, the reasons for Paul's prayer, and thirdly, it is the prayer of vindication to Epaphras' ministry. It's very interesting to note that though Paul gave thanks to God and prayed for the Colossians, he felt that it is important to mention about the ministry of Epaphras. This is the first time in this letter Paul mentions the name of Epaphras. You can see that in verse 7. As you also <laughs> learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in this birth. Now, why would the apostle bring Apaphras' name here? The answer is though the church in Colossae is faithfully resting firmly in Christ. It is already disturbed by the heresy and there was an attack on the gospel and the ministry of Epaphras. As an apostle it is important for Paul to testify the trustworthiness of Epaphras' ministry. He must do so by writing to the church to confirm to them his faith in Epaphras' ministry. And this will help the church to keep trusting in the ministry of Epaphras, as well as to deal with the heresy promoters. Firstly, he's, Paul says about Epaphras that he is our dear fellow servant. He is our dear fellow servant. Paul places him right along his side. He is our dear fellow servant my colleague in Christ Jesus. The Apophis may not be an apostle, but as far as the ministry is concerned, he's the servant of God, just as we are, says the apostle Paul. <laughs> I trust him. I know him. He's a trustworthy person. He preaches the true gospel. You support him. Paul also says, secondly, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Paul gives his apostolic commendation to Epaphras. The Colossians needed to hear this. Paul wrote this for their benefit. You need to encourage Epaphras. You have got a true servant of Christ unlike the masquerading angels of the devil. This man has proved and he continues to prove himself through his life and ministry. You know his life and his ministry. Have faith in him and support him for the sake of the gospel. He loves Christ and he loves you. So he's validating Apophers' ministry. All that is in Paul's prayer. The prayer of thanksgiving to God. All oh, friends, in closing, let me ask these questions. Are we like the Colossian church? <clears throat> Leave the heresy apart. These people loved Christ. They rested in Christ. They rejoiced in Christ. They gloried in Christ. They had this gospel love for one another, they loved the saints. Is it our aim to be a church like that? Loving Christ and loving one another. Can can someone say the same thing about you? Is faith, love, and hope be seen in our life, in our conduct? We are not striving to be and to have these in our lives. What purpose are we gathering together as a church? Is it possible to withstand any heresy and trouble without the faith and the commitment to Christ? Just like the Colossian church demonstrated. We need an answer to these questions squarely looking at our own hearts. Looking at our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ if we do not possess these things that the Colossians had in Christ, if we do not strive to grow in these, then our worship would be in vain. Our gospel efforts will be in vain. We need to love the Lord Jesus Christ with the depth of growth. We need to hold on to that same gospel that these people heard And Epaphras preached and Paul preached. Not twisting and turning and trying to change it but the same gospel that saved people for centuries. The same gospel we need to believe in. We need to hold on to We don't need strange doctrines coming among us. We need to know what we believe. We need to know the substance of the gospel and hold on to it. And fend off every false teaching and cling on to Christ. And we need to love the brethren. Demonstrate that gospel love for Christ and one another. No wonder the Apostle Paul was thrilled when he heard the news by the Colossian church that he burst out giving thanks to God. Even in prison stopped him to give thanks to God in praise. He was not directly involved the labors of apoferst but that didn't stop him to give thanks to God for these dear people and for the gospel work that's how we should be and that's what we have been doing right In every place the gospel penetrates into the hearts of the sinners and saves them churches being planted. Give glory to God. Let God be praised. Because it is his work. Of which we are part of. Let's pray together. O oh, gracious and heavenly father. We do thank you for this morning. We are able to enter into your presence. With the help of the Holy Spirit. To worship you. And to hear your word. And about this church and their love for you and love for one another. What a great thing that we were able to read in the prayers of Paul. How thankful he was to you for this church and he rejoiced. Help us to rejoice in the work of yours in every place. Help us to be the people about whom we have just met. O Lord, walk in us for your glory, now and in the days to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.